Welcome to Music History Monday for December 18th, 2023. I'm Bob Greenberg, and the title for today's podcast is Shostakovich Symphony Number no. 13. If you haven't already, please consider joining me on my subscription site at patreon.com slash Robert Greenberg Music, where I blog, vlog, podcast, pontificate, review, and bloviate four to six times a week. On December 18, 1962, 61 years ago today, Dmitry Shostakovich's Symphony No. 13 received its premiere in Moscow. The symphony stirred up a proverbial hornet's nest of controversy, and we're not talking here about your everyday hornet, but rather those gnarly and nasty Asian giant hornets. It was a symphonic premiere that almost didn't take place, though in the end the show did go on. Nevertheless, the authorities, that would be the Soviet authorities, notable for their heavy blue serge suits, vodka breaths, and deficient senses of humor, did everything in their power to squash the symphony out of existence. In this, they failed miserably, and Shostakovich's 13th is today acknowledged as not just one of Shostakovich's supreme masterworks, but as one of the most musically and politically important works composed during the 20th century. A good communist. During the late 1950s, Shostakovich was increasingly used by the Soviet authorities as a sort of artistic figurehead meant to represent the supposedly free Soviet intelligentsia. In 1960, the first secretary of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, Nikita Khrushchev, 1894 to 1971, decided to make the 54-year-old Shostakovich the chairman of the newly founded RSFSR, the Russian Union of Composers. Now, this was a huge honor, and Shostakovich felt that it was a position that would make him, finally and for all time, unassailable, untouchable, unpurgeable, and of equal importance, would guarantee the safety and success of his two now-grown children, Galina, 24 years old, and Maxim, 22 years old. However, there was a catch. To take the position, Shostakovich had to join the Communist Party, something he had long sworn he would never, ever, under any circumstances, do. Well, he did join the Communist Party, telling his friends that he signed the necessary papers while under the influence of alcohol, S-U-I, signing under the influence. For months afterwards, Shostakovich was, no exaggeration, literally hysterical with self-loathing. The musicologist, folklorist, and friend of Shostakovich, Lev Lebedinsky, recalled, quote, I will never forget some of the things he said that night before his induction into the party, sobbing hysterically, I'm scared to death of them. You don't know the whole truth. 
From childhood, I've always had to do things I didn't want to do. I've been a whore and always will be a whore. He often lashed at himself in strong words, unquote. Yeah, I'll say. And so, kicking and screaming, Shostakovich joined the Soviet Communist Party. For all the world, he was the picture of a good and obedient communist apparatchik. Again, according to the previously quoted Lev Lebedinsky, quote, without fail, he attended every possible ridiculous meeting of the Supreme Soviet, every plenary session, every political gathering. He even took part in the agitprop, agitation, propaganda, car rally. In other words, he eagerly took part in events that he himself described as torture by boredom. He sat there like a puppet, applauding when the others applauded. Once I remember him clapping eagerly after Krenikov had made a speech in which he made some offensive remarks about Shostakovich. Why did you clap when you were being criticized, I asked. He hadn't even noticed. What moved him was not a lack of principles, but fear. Take his attack on Solzhenitsyn and Sakharov. It is well known that Shostakovich sympathized with both of them, so God only knows what possessed him to put his signature on that filthy slander of Sakharov and Solzhenitsyn. Nobody forced him to do it. Afterwards, he cursed himself, saying that he'd never forgive himself for having done it. Unquote. The Thaw While all of this was happening, the nature of Soviet suppression was actually changing for the better. Joseph Stalin, the great leader and teacher and truly one of the worst people ever to have lived, died on March 5, 1953. He was succeeded as first secretary of the Central Committee of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union by Nikita Khrushchev. In 1956, Khrushchev denounced Stalin as being, quote, savage, half-mad, and power-crazed, unquote, in his famous secret speech, delivered to the 20th Party Congress in February of 1956, the speech was, in fact, anything but secret. Khrushchev's denunciation of Stalin initiated a period called the Thaw, during which domestic repression and censorship in the Soviet bloc were scaled back, at least until Khrushchev's ouster in 1964. The Thaw reached its climax in 1962 with the publication of Alexander Solzhenitsyn's one Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich, and the premiere of Dmitry Shostakovich's Symphony No. 13. Never mind that the Soviet authorities did everything they could to undermine the symphony's premiere, and that it was banned outright after its second performance. It was composed, it was heard, and its impact could not be forgotten. The Poem and the Symphony on September 19, 1961, 
a poem entitled Bobby Yar was published. Written by a 28-year-old poet named Yevgeny Yevtushenko, 1932-2017, the poem, an outright condemnation of Soviet anti-Semitism, unleashed a firestorm of controversy. Yevtushenko was vilified, ostracized, threatened, and spat upon. During Stalin's lifetime, Yevtushenko would simply have been disappeared, leaving hardly a wet spot. So we must consider the treatment he received in 1961 in response to his poem as being quite benign. Baba Yar was a ravine just outside the Ukrainian capital of Kiev, where between 100,000 and 150,000 men, women, and children were slaughtered, buried, and later burned in open pits by the Nazis. The ravine has since been filled in and is today within the Kiev city limits. On September 29th and 30th, 1941 alone, some 33,771 Jews were killed there, the single deadliest slaughter of the Holocaust. The Soviet government did not officially recognize this mass killing of Kiev's Jews as ever having taken place. Yevtushenko's poem tore away the official Soviet party line and revealed the rampant societal anti-Semitism behind it. Yevtushenko's poem concludes with the lines, There is no Jewish blood in my blood, but I feel the loathsome hatred of all anti-Semitism as though I were a Jew, and that is why I am a true Russian. Shostakovich read the poem and was deeply moved. He told an interviewer, quote, I was overjoyed when I read Yevtushenko's Baba Yar. The poem astounded me. It astounded thousands of people. Many had heard about Baba Yar, but it took Yevtushenko's poem to make them aware of it. They tried to destroy the memory of Baba Yar. But after Yevtushenko's poem, it became clear that it would never be forgotten. That is the power of art. Art destroys silence. Unquote. So it was that in early 1962, Yevtushenko received a phone call from the great and famous Dmitry Shostakovich. Yevtushenko recalled, quote, The telephone rang. I heard his amazing, inimitable voice. It was slightly hoarse, stuttering, vibrating, jerky. Yevgeny Alexandrovich, Shostakovich here. I read your poem, Bobby R. It's a remarkable poem. Will you allow me to set it to music? I was in seventh heaven. At a difficult moment when I was being attacked from every side, Shostakovich himself was asking my permission to set my poem to music. I replied hurriedly, fearing that he might change his mind. Of course, please do. He said matter-of-factly, Splendid! Thank God you don't mind. The music is ready. Can you come here right away? 
From childhood, the name Dmitri Dmitrievich Shostakovich meant something eternal to me, and I never thought that I would meet him in the flesh. I went to his apartment, where for the first time I heard his setting of Babiyar. It was not a symphony yet. It was quite extraordinary. He sang in a hoarse voice. When he came to the line, it seems to me that I am Anne Frank. He wept. I was overwhelmed. He amazed me with his profound rendering of the poem. His music made the poem greater, more meaningful and powerful. In a word, it became a much better poem. Unquote. Shostakovich set four more poems by Yevtushenko, and together, the five settings for bass soloist, men's chorus, and large orchestra became his symphony number 13. Look, degrees in genetic mapping are not required to realize that a composition that set to music poems like Baba Yar was not going to meet with approval from state ideologues, thaw or no thaw. Yeah, the Moscow District Party Secretary was recorded as having said, quote, This is outrageous. We let Shostakovich join the party, and then he goes and presents us with a symphony about Jews, unquote. Once again, back in the old days, Shostakovich and his Steenkin symphony would simply have disappeared, this time leaving no wet spot at all. But Soviet censorship had changed since the death of Stalin. It was well understood that by 1962, the surest way to create a cultural martyr out of both the composer and his symphony was to ban the symphony's performance. Consequently, the authorities took a somewhat more subtle approach. Shostakovich's choice for the bass soloist was Boris Gamiria, 1903-1969, who initially professed to be thrilled to be chosen to sing the premiere. He then sat on the score for a month before writing Shostakovich that in light of the symphony's dubious text, he could not take part in the performance. Okay. The authorities also got to the conductor Evgeny Mravinsky, 1903-1988. Mravinsky, who had premiered almost all of Shostakovich's orchestral music since the Fifth Symphony in 1936, also had a sudden change of heart and mind, and likewise refused to premiere the Thirteenth, for which Shostakovich never forgave him. Ravinsky's withdrawal did in fact horrify his friends and admirers, including the cellist and conductor Mstislav Rostropovich, who later wrote, quote, I despised Mravinsky as a human being for his cowardice in the whole affair of the 13th Symphony. There was no excuse for such behavior. Mravinsky must have understood what a brilliant work the 13th Symphony was, as well as its importance to Shostakovich, unquote. The conductor Kirill Kondrashin 1914 to 1981, stepped in for Mravinsky, and rehearsals commenced. 
The premiere of Shostakovich's Symphony No. 13 was scheduled for the evening of December 18, 1962. The dress rehearsal was scheduled for that same morning. The house was packed for the rehearsal. Students from the conservatory and party officials were there in conspicuous number. One person who was not there was the new bass soloist, Victor Nichipailo, born 1926, who phoned in 15 minutes before the rehearsal was to begin and claimed that he was indisposed. Got it. Anticipating just such a possibility, Shostakovich and the conductor, Kirill Kondrashin, had arranged for another singer named Vitaly Gromadsky to secretly learn the part, a sort of emergency understudy about whose existence no one else was aware. Gromadsky was brought forward, and the dress rehearsal began. After completing the first movement, the setting of Baba Yar, the conductor Kirill Kondrashin was called to the telephone. Kondrashin tells the story. Quote, it was Georgi Popov, the Minister of Culture. Kirill Petrovich, how is your health? Very well, I said. Then a menacing tone was introduced. Is there anything that might prevent you from conducting tonight? No, I'm in splendid form. Then he said, do you have any political doubts in relation to Baba Yar? I answered, no, I don't have any. I think that it's very timely and very relevant. Silence again. Then he said, tell me your expert opinion. Can the symphony be performed without the first movement? I said, that is entirely out of the question. Everybody already knows that the first movement is a setting of Baba Yar. If we cut it out, it will cause a most undesirable reaction. Silence again. Then he said, Well, do as you see fit. Unquote. Kiro Kondrashin <laughs> was a brave man. The performance went ahead that evening as scheduled, with a few lines of text censored and minus the planned television broadcast. It was a triumphant and very emotional evening for most everyone involved, although you wouldn't have known it from the reviews, because there weren't any. Instead, an unsigned editorial was published in Pravda a few days later. Without naming any names, it read, in part, quote, If, let's say, a composer writes a symphony about our reality, basing it chiefly on gloomy, evil, sarcastic, parodistic, or tearful, pessimistic images, then, whether the author desires it or not, what results is the denigration of our life, its mistaken, distorted portrayal, unquote. But the symphony had been heard, and as Shostakovich observed earlier, art destroys silence. After the premiere, 
the pianist Maria Udina, 1895 to 1970, represented well the view of the liberal Russian intelligentsia when she wrote the musicologist Pierre Suvchinsky that, quote, Shostakovich has become one of us again with his 13th, unquote. Yeah, our comment to Madame Udina, having been forced to join the Communist Party notwithstanding, Shostakovich had never ceased being one of you. A recording we all should know about. Ordinarily, a Music History Monday post about a piece of music would be followed with a recommended recording the following day in Dr. Bob Prescribes. However, that will not happen as I have something else in mind for tomorrow's Dr. Bob Prescribes post. Nevertheless, there is a particular recording of Shostakovich's 13th, the existence of which we should all know about. On December 20th, 1962, two days after the premiere of Shostakovich's Symphony No. 13, a second performance of the symphony was allowed to take place, after which further performances were temporarily banned. This second performance employed Yevtushenko's original uncensored poems and was, thank heavens, recorded. Over the years, this recording has appeared on various labels at various times. I have tried for years to get a hold of the hybrid SACD, or Super Audio CD, issued by Praga Digitals, but so far with no success. However, the version issued on the label Russian Disc is completely satisfactory. Writing in Gramophone, the English music critic Edward Seckerson called this, quote, a searing live performance. The poetry of protest has rarely been embodied in music of such astonishing empathy, a startling document of very troubled times and inescapably a reflection of what is happening in Russia at this very moment, unquote. If you can find this recording, at a decent price, I cannot recommend it too highly. Thank you. To sample and download one or all of my many courses on subjects musical produced by The Great Courses slash The Teaching Company, please visit my website at robertgreenbergmusic.com.